What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark Stay. And a big thank you, as always, to the people who keep this train on its tracks, all those wonderful patrons on Patreon and our academics on the Bestseller Academy, anyone who supports this podcast. Now, if you want to support the podcast, pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support you're going to find all the details there you'll find out about the academy as well mr d never been a better time to join the academy beginning of 2023 new year new you new writer tell us all about it yeah there's another week left folks to get started this year with the academy so pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com all you have to do is fill out a very short application which we review and we'll get back to you and then you get to join in We have over 30 very, very in-depth courses on everything you can imagine from craft coaching to uh, life coaching, setting goals. There's a course on the Academy about dream declarations. There's a course about setting your goals for the the year. So it's so many things to do. We can't obviously cover it all in in this episode. But if you're interested in finding out more, just pop along to the website and uh, listen to episode 400. Listen to the stories of all our Academy members that have had amazing journeys over the last year. You know, the Academy's only two and a half years old, Mark. I can't believe it. seems like just the other day when we announced it on the Whoosh. podcast. What was that? Two what and was a half life? years. <laughs> I know, right? Clocks are ticking, people. No time like the present. And Get I should mention it. as well that as if you enjoy these podcasts and you want to go really deep with Mark and I, we become your coaches in the Academy. I coach what I call life coaching for writers. We get into the inner game of writing. I get into your head and I work out what's going on, all those self-doubts that you might have, all those you know goals that you want to set. I, I coach you like one-to-one on Zoom calls in a group on in the Academy. And Mark does these most amazing craft coaching sessions. And Every Wednesday, right to surgery is a drop-in session where you get to ask Mark your deepest questions about anything that's happening in your book they're or anything you want to know fun. about anything. They're Brilliant. such good fun. They're really, really good fun. It's, it's all kind of loosey-goosey and relaxed and fun, but we really get into some deep stuff there and everyone comes away a better writer, including me. <laughs> and we should also say thank you as well to the Academy members who are with us because it's it's those they are such an inspiring group of people they're all very like-minded they're all focusing on you know getting to that major goal that they've their own goal whether it's and some of them it's just finishing their book others you know they want to win awards and get netflix shows from the book i mean it's all about you know where you want to start and where your aspirations lie ahead of you but everyone is there cheering each other on as i just don't know of a better uh, a group of people to to support each other through it all so it's a, it's a ready-made community to jump into yeah but uh, yeah so anyway pop along academy.bestsellerexperiment.com we'd love to become your coaches so mr stay how are you this week i'm tickety-boo tickety-boo looking forward to new horizons new year all this good exciting stuff got a film on the way which is cool uh i'm working on a new series which i might self-publish so it's a there's a whole world of possibilities so uh very excited writing every day as always so absolutely yeah and we should say actually if you if you thinking oh it's already january and i was going to write every day and i'm not even done that and it's you know a classic what is it i think january the 7th is the day when most people break their new year's <laughs> resolutions and i know we're going out after the 7th so maybe that's you well actually you know what new year's as much as it's an important day in the calendar year it's just a figment in our imagination yeah, yeah. isn't it mark right yeah. just <laughs> time moment. time doesn't even exist folks does it really we're all living <laughs> we're all living we're all living we're all living parallel universes so this could be january the first for you in your parallel life so start that writing every day today today is 
the next day of your life. So if you know, don't beat yourself up if you've already broken that resolution of, you know, 200wordchallenge.com, go along, register and start writing because the earlier you start, the more words you get in your lifetime. That's the basic premise of it, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, not even five minutes into the podcast and you're questioning the whole fabric of space-time reality. It's a bit, it's a bit heavy. Yeah. yeah. Excellent stuff. <laughs> well, talking about something that isn't heavy. We you had the most amazing interview with none other than Cole Haddon. Tell us about our special guest today, Mark. This is great. Cole Haddon, he's an Australian-American screenwriter and novelist. Now, his first TV commission was a show called Dracula, which was produced by NBC and Sky and debuted in, in 2013, starred Jonathan Rhys-Mayer's absolute cracking show. He's also had graphic novels published by Dark Horse. Uh, he's also currently writing with Park Chan-wook, legendary director Park Chan-wook. But we were here to talk about his uh, new novel, Headline, uh, recently acquired worldwide rights to his debut novel psalms for the end of the world and it's epic stuff and we discuss getting too many notes being genre agnostic and learning from failure brilliant let's dive in and listen to the incredible cole Haddon. cole Haddon, welcome to the bestseller experiment how are you today sir i'm i'm doing very well uh thank you for having me how, how are you today I'm very good indeed. Thanks for asking. And all the better for, for dipping into Psalms for the End of the World, which which is an extraordinary book. And it opens with the announcement that the Soviet Union have just tested a nuclear weapon, which gave me chills. What are you trying to do to us, Cole? <laughs> this feels more timely than ever. Tell, tell us about Psalms for the End of the World. Uh, well, should I, should I pitch out Go sort of it. the general overview, uh, and then I, I can explain to you where that that scene uh, came from. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, it opens in 1962. We meet uh, Gracie Polanski. She's a, a quantum physics student by day, uh, one of only two women in Caltech's physics program uh, at the time, uh, and by night she's a, din- a diner waitress. Uh, and it's in this capacity that she's met and fallen in love with Robert Jones. Uh, he's a regular who comes in every night to hear about her day and be served up slices of, of pie. Uh, but tonight, this being the night that we meet him, uh, he's preoccupied by the suitcase. We know he's placed in the uh, the, the boot of his car, uh, a suitcase full of ominous purpose, the contents of which he hopes will set right some terrible thing he's done to Gracie. Uh, so when he gets up to go, he says he has to leave town for uh, for work. Uh, he doesn't know uh, when or even if uh, he'll be back, and uh, he hopes to see her again. Now, these are words that crush Gracie, uh, but the next night he shows up uh, anyway, except this time he doesn't know who she is, uh, doesn't even remember her name. Mm-hmm. And then the FBI bursts in with their guns waving and accuse him of blowing up Pasadena City Hall, killing some 23 people inside it. And he looks at Gracie and says he didn't do do it. Uh, and so this is how the two of them end up on the run together through America Southwest and eventually much further, uh, trying to work out if Jones is really the terrorist behind this attack, and as we'll find numerous uh, others, or if he is some kind of uh, amnesiac wrong man in the Hitchcockian vein. And so as they press their investigation, their story begins to interconnect with others taking place across time. And uh, these include a, a samurai trying to keep uh, their young baby alive, uh, uh, a, a post a pre-revolutionary uh, French painter uh, whose paintings drive people mad when they look at them, <laughs> uh, two Nazi hunters uh, whose story sort of smashes into the paintings that uh, that that this uh, painter is uh, creating uh, a, a Japanese astronaut uh, working for sort of a, a Tesla, a SpaceX uh, in space, whose uh, life keeps disappearing and just ending and, and resetting over and over in this uh, strange uh, fashion. So eventually, uh, these very disparate storylines begin to collide, really revealing how uh, we're all connected by love, grief, and something like quantum physics. <laughs> so it's a it's a small story, <laughs> <laughs> and it was you sent uh, you sent us a letter before the um, before we recorded, and it's uh, it, it's it's incredible stuff. It tells us where where the whole idea came from, and it seems to have been inspired by you looking into the eyes of one of your children. Can you can you tell us about that? 
Yeah. So the uh, yes, the the story itself, I I spent 20 years uh, or so collecting notes and I had a a sense of what that central storyline, the Jones and Gracie storyline was. But the book itself eluded me. Uh, It uh, I I would try just something was always wrong. Uh, But in 2016, uh, we we. sold our house after the election, moved to Southeast London. My wife found out she was pregnant at the same time my mother died. Uh, and I, she gave birth over there. And so I, I found myself at 3 a.m. in the morning with my, uh, my newborn son, nine days old, uh, strapped to me uh, up because it was my job to, to take care of him while my wife was catching up on, uh, on sleep. Uh, and and somewhere there with him strapped to me while the world was burning down, it felt like outside everything had stopped making sense. Like I said, my mother had died. My father uh, would soon tell me that uh, if he didn't get a double lung transplant, he would die too. But somewhere in this sort of miserable, uh, apocalyptic feeling, I had this baby strapped to me and, uh, and the story clicked uh, at that point. And I started typing and didn't stop for six months. And you say you'd been collecting notes for 20 years before that. And I think this is, I certainly relate to this on a different level. I didn't have the, I mean, what you went through there sounds absolutely, you know, terrifying um, and overwhelming. But something as simple, I had an idea that had been kicking around for years and just something as simple as moving home to a different location. I thought, okay, think I'm going to set it here. I'm going to set it here where I live. Did, Did you... Do you think that your idea had been swimming around but was just looking for the right moment in your life to come along? Did you need did you need to go through these trials in order for it to make sense? I, I think so. This book would not be what it was without uh, all of those. Uh, I mean, every, everybody has these tragedies. This is not something that was unique to me. We all eventually lose our uh, our parents, but but several things went wrong in life uh, at the the same time, uh, and and that's what was necessary, I think, to shake uh, something loose. That that previously, um, I, I was working in Hollywood. Everything was was uh, everything I had to write was very most of it was very soulless. The 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 the, the process of creating in Hollywood is not one of of deep introspection or originality uh, or, or really authorial voice, something that's personal to you that, that you're going to own. Uh, and I think I, re- I really struggled with diving into this book until I, I broke free of that, uh, which took leaving Hollywood to a degree. Uh, and I think it took some of these, these tragedies. So I, I prepped and prepped until the moment uh, came and just trusted it eventually would come. I wish it had not been uh, the, that, that specific series of events, Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but the, the book certainly helped me uh, confront a lot of what, uh, what manifested from those experiences. And you said you didn't stop writing for six months. So you kind of gave yourself wholesale to this novel. What, what were you, were you writing every day? What were your sort of writing habits while you were working on it? Well, my my wife and I had this arrangement where I would go to bed at nine and get up at uh, three in the morning uh, and relieve her from the child from from caring for the child. I sort of buy her those four hours of uninterrupted yeah. sleep if I could. So for about three months, I I wrote from three a.m. Uh, until eight a.m. when uh, when she would really. Uh, when when she would step back in, and then I'd I'd nap, maybe write some more. Uh, I I had to write a screenplay for Park Chan Wook during this time as well, which uh, which uh, was fun, but overlapped. It uh, provided me a bit of respite from the intensity uh, of of the book. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, six months. The first stretch was that writing early morning. And then picking up, basically rewriting in the afternoon after I, I had recovered some of my uh, energy. And then after that, uh, I was three-fourths of the way through a first draft. So it was mostly just intensive rewriting. The book is filled with, um, it's a complicated, emotional, and uh, I guess time puzzle uh, because of the, the nature of the book, the way it uh Sort of explores what reality is over uh, what what might be different dimensions. Uh, it's it's inherent in sort of the concept, 
so it just there was a lot of rewriting and discovering connections, letting the book tell me what it was uh, over time. But that was the reworking. The reworking was was really half of it. 3 a.m. to by the way, nice name drop there, Park Chanwook. We'll come back to that. Yeah, I know. I, 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 after doing that, it was a little bit embarrassing. It's, no, no, uh, no, no. I do exactly yeah. the same. Old oh boy, handmaiden, fantastic. But we'll come back to that. Um, 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. is a pretty trippy time of the day. You know, it's uh, did that? Do you think that contributed to? the you know the the more fabulous elements of the story was was that was being in that kind of twilight time making the book stranger for you i i think so i so one of the interesting i i suppose the inciting creative incident for the book was my my friend uh uh, Harley Payton, who he wrote about half of Twin Peaks. So he's he's done some very impressive things. And he had told me that when he worked with David Lynch, uh, David never stopped to ask what he was doing. It was just the most intuitive filmmaker he had ever worked with. Uh, and the 3 to 8 a.m. helped that process immensely because I wasn't in my normal structure. I wasn't interrogating what I was doing uh, as I would when working on a screenplay. Uh, during a normal workday, I just wrote and and let something happen because it seemed interesting. And then later I would reread it and and make sure that something interesting had happened or or throw it out if it hadn't. But it it stripped in some ways that three to eight a.m. stripped the uh, my the the censor that that had been right. in my head for a very long time working in Hollywood. I just. I wrote for me with a baby strapped to me uh, and it, it, uh, it was very, very freeing uh, in, in many ways. That sounds fantastic. Folks, anyone listening to this, if anyone wants to try the 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. writing uh, <laughs> style, let, let us know how it goes. Uh, don't strap any babies to you unless it's yours and you have, you know, their consent. <laughs> Um, but that that sounds it sounds great. It sounds so liberating. I mean, I've I've worked in I work, I'm a screenwriter, but I and I love the collaboration of it. But I also love my novels because they are my happy place. You know, there's there's interaction with an editor and your agent and a publisher, what have you. But it's still my it's much more my thing than anything else that I've written. Uh, was that one of the things you you loved most about this process? And would you you know presumably you're still screenwriting? Do you? Does it change the way you write your scripts? Nothing could change the way I write my scripts because screenwriting is such a reductive form of the English language. Uh, <laughs> you 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 can try, you can you can fight the good fight, uh, but at the end of the day, you you find yourself writing sentences uh, so so brief, so staccato yeah. that that Hemingway would would <laughs> gasp at you. Uh, you know, I, uh, and so the 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 ability to write sentences, uh, to write real sentences, uh, and write something that was just uh, for me. And sometimes my wife would say she would read pages and say, "I, I don't know what you're doing." And I, I would say, "I'm. I tr trust me. I think I can make this work." And and I was okay if I failed. I, I just was at a point I needed to put it down right. and find out if some of these theories. Uh, that I, I had about how you could tell a story would would work uh, as opposed to those the, the screenplays where I love collaboration uh, as you just described it. But I created this television series for NBC and Sky, and at one point we were receiving notes from over twenty different people. Oh that's God. not collaboration anymore. Yeah. I mean that that. <laughs> That that's a form of torture, and and nothing nothing good will ever be created uh, when you have twenty different people uh, providing notes. It's 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 one thing if if you have a patron in the Renaissance, you know, yes. giving you notes. I I I need more more God in this or whatever. <laughs> You're dealing with one voice, but uh, at some point it's just terrible. So yeah, you know, the, the the being able just to own something, to love something on your own terms and to most importantly fail and know it's, if you fail, it's because of what you did. It wasn't mm. because somebody gave you terrible notes. Uh, it, it wasn't because somebody told you to, to throw in this scene that you knew was embarrassing uh, uh, or anything like that. It's just you uh, live, live or die on, on your own ability. 
I'd like to talk about that idea of failing there because I think it's an important thing for an author to learn. We have we have an academy, and a lot of people who are writing their debut novels, their first novels, they get about a third of the way in, which is where you really start making very important story choices, choices that have consequences. And I know that a lot of people get paralyzed by that because they fear that they're going to get it wrong. How important is it, is it for you to, to fail as you write? Uh, for me, it's always been critical. It's, it's, it's my entire professional life and pursuit of the art has been a series of failures. Uh, and so what... <laughs> I don't who who creates where they don't fail, and mm. so if you if you're afraid of failing, we're all afraid of failing mm. to to some degree. Uh, but art, I, I find, or creation requires a lot of experimentation. I, uh, early uh, in my career, I wrote a couple novels; they were terrible, uh, and and I, I moved on. But I learned a lot from that that then was applied to screenwriting. And then I failed a lot in screenwriting before I found out how to do it in a way that, that had a voice that I was mm-hmm. proud of to, you know, as much as it could be. And those, every failure informs it. I, the, the, the novel itself is, has uh, story threads that are aborted ideas that I attempted to move forward in other form and other mediums and for whatever reason, I failed and they didn't die. I, they were right. things that I still loved and they they resurrect themselves again. Even, even in screenwriting, so much of it is pitching. You're, you're, you're generating ideas and somebody says, that's not for me. Or you, ha- you have an idea on how to solve a problem in your screenplay and it goes away because it, it wasn't the right solution. And then the next project you work on is back and you sound like a genius now because you just spit <laughs> this thing out. <laughs> oh, I have this random idea that off of what you just said. And it's just, you, you're, you've failed so much. You, you have a deep, deep toolbox uh, at, at some point. And I, that's, a, that's, that's a good thing. I love it. I absolutely love it. Just coming back, because you mentioned... Uh, when we were originally talking about Psalms for the End of the World, you mentioned all these disparate storylines. I'm always fascinated how authors keep track of all those different threads. Uh, are you sort of um, are you pantsing it, you're just putting it down, or are you having been in screenwriting, are you carding things? How, how is that working for you? Uh, I am an incredibly odd writer in that I can hold a tremendous amount of inter- of information in my head, whether it's screenwriting uh, breaking a whole season of television or working on a book like this, uh, I I can map things out, and then my wife will say, "Well, you're you're no longer present. This is six months. I'd like you back," uh, because I because I can't do I can't function doing small things. Everything must eat my, my, I have a to do list every day because I'm holding so much in my head mm-hmm. that that I can't remember to do simple yes, things, and I, so I do the same. <laughs> uh, when I when I I sold uh, sold this to this novel to Headline, my editor uh, put together a really beautiful uh, Excel spreadsheet of all of the characters, how they interacted, uh, and and it was already in my head. I could e- explain it. It's a frightening thing, and it doesn't mean it's it's not something I wish I did. Uh, <laughs> but but it's it's. Especially with a story with so many different facets, where they're interconnecting over time, and uh, there are there are connections you discover because you're allowing yourself some chaos as well. You you because of the nature of this specific book, you you want the characters to accidentally stumble into something you you didn't uh, see coming yes. beforehand, and that yeah. that happened quite a bit. If, if it were a linear story, I probably would have. Uh, outlined more than I I did, but but uh, yeah, it, it just was in my head. And for six months, I had my baby, and I had me trying to make sense of this. And uh, it it was I I don't think it was a enjoyable time for <laughs> for my wife. <laughs> Um, let's go back to where it all started. I, I read somewhere that you were drawn to storytelling as a child. You you've always written, haven't you? I, I have. I, I it, it's been a long and winding road to to where I am now because I've never really. I'm, I'm very genre or medium agnostic. Uh, 
I I thought I was going to be an illustrator, uh, write uh, write comic books, but also illustrate them. Uh, I realized I was a very slow illustrator. I like my stories to happen faster. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I didn't want to spend two months drawing something that other people could could spit out quickly. Uh, yeah, so I just I I I started writing. I think by about ten and. Uh, and start writing screenplays by the time I was about 14, 15 and started working on my first novel at 20 and uh, never really understood. It's, it's a, I always joke uh, uh, my, whenever, whenever, especially I have female friends who are writers, they say, Oh, I'm so intimidated by, by novels. And I said, well, you just, you should just act like a white man and th- think you can do it. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I just never stopped to ask whether or not I could do anything. I just knew I wanted to tell stories and, and kept doing things. And then the failing <laughs> resulted <Yeah>. in training <laughs> and, and you, you, you read and you watch your films and you learn uh, process uh, along the way, you know, the, the, how to be better, uh, at it, but uh, I I was never gifted with uh, uh, the ability to second guess mm. <laughs> what I was doing. I just sort of plowed forward, failed for a very long time, and uh, and and then eventually made money doing it. It's funny. I've said the same thing to my kids, which is I you know I I had that thing. It's particularly in my twenties, which was I can do anything. I had this arrogance that I could do absolutely, and I fell flat on my face. Yeah. plenty of times um but i learned a lot doing that i learned a lot by yeah. falling flat my again comes back to this thing of, of fail. i failed an awful lot but learned a lot yeah. from it yeah <laughs> I, I i don't know what I, I i remember when i sold my first screenplay i was uh, 32 33 wow. uh, and then i had six, I, I sold two scripts uh it seemed like things were going well and then we went i, I hit a dark patch where for about 16 months nobody employed me i was about to get married right before our wedding, about two weeks before, I said, I have to be honest now to my wife. We have no money left. There, there's about $3,000 credit. I've borrowed all I can from my dad before you know, he's going to tell me that, that I need to get a roommate. We're going to get married. We're going to come back from the honeymoon. We're getting roommates. It, it's terrible. I'm, I'm sorry. And then we sold, I sold three projects in that next <laughs> two weeks. It just, but, but had it not, had I not had that dark period, I wouldn't understand uh, that it wasn't easy, that I wasn't mm. magically gifted, that I, I wasn't entitled to it. Uh, and I've gone yeah. through several dark patches uh, since then, every single time. Mm. I, I'm reminded of the work that has to go into it, that I'm always grateful. It mm. didn't just go, I, I, I wasn't just gifted uh, yeah. with with a career, as I, as many people I call friends have, and <laughs> I tell them how much I resent them to their faces. <laughs> You mentioned the illustrating there, but you have also written graphic novels. I believe, am I right in thinking you did one called The Strange Case of Mr. Hyde for Dark Horse Comics, which I believe started as a screenplay. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it, it started as an idea for a screenplay and Dark Horse uh, had uh, had become fans of mine. Uh, they, they still are rather, I've just become best friends with the person who runs the company uh, over the last 15 years or so. But he loved the idea uh, and uh, and decided we should do a comic book uh, to go along with it uh, and and ran out uh, and pitched it. Uh, and so that that was uh, yeah, my first foray into to graphic novels. Uh, and how, how was that? Because I know there's a misconception that graphic novels are a lot like screenplays. And then you read someone like Alan Moore saying it's nothing like... Uh, screenwriting how was that experience writing for for comic books it i don't know what it's like for other people uh, but for me it was challenging because i'm a very visual person and comics are a visual medium uh, and i think i've always probably tried to exert more control over the visual aspect of it i write basically how i want to see it uh, and that that doesn't necessarily make for great collaboration with with an illustrator, uh, and so that's something I've had to uh, learn uh, to deal with with uh, over with over time. That uh, uh, that that the artist brings something as valuable uh, as I do. It's not just a service mm-hmm. uh, in some way. Yeah, uh, and so that that was interesting. It's also writing for uh, uh, in a. Um, in a very short, um, 
medium, you know, it's brief, those 24 or so pages and the cliffhanger that, that you have to uh, work into it. it it's, it's, uh, it's not entirely dissimilar from television and it's something that uh, is present in, in Psalms, that Psalms is 526 pages long. And one of the things that, uh, that I knew I needed to, to be a book that I would read was I, I needed a sense of, of first accomplishment, which meant I needed to write shorter chapters because who wants to, mm. to read 30 pages, chap, page chapters, give up on a book. It's just, you, you want that sense of accomplishment at the end yeah, of the yeah, night, yeah. you read yeah. something. Yes. Uh, and the other was to compel people to keep reading something that was so large. And so uh, I used cliffhangers uh, in, in a way that is probably atypical uh, in in literary fiction, uh, but it was was something that I felt with the the idea, and certainly the book's relationship to pop culture was was necessary. Excellent stuff. You mentioned screenwriting then, and I think am I right in thinking the HBO show where you're getting notes from twenty people was that the Dracula show with Jonathan Rhys Myers? Yes, yes. Which I I put it to you, sir. That show was way ahead of its time. That was. Uh... <laughs> It, it, it's uh, it, it's such an interesting series. Uh, I, 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 I'm curious uh, how how do you uh, how do you mean that? For your, I think I think from if your you, point of view, it was ve- I mean it was very bloody. It's very sexy. I I think uh, it would sit on Netflix really really well now. Whereas um, I mean I mean Sky was going through that uh, thing with Rome and Band of Brothers where they were sort of pushing the barrier with these kind of shows. But I. Um, I, I think if a show like that would do incredibly well on a streamer these days, and streamers really weren't around. I mean, we're talking about 2013, not not a million years ago, but a lot has happened since then. No, it, it also it, it it did involve a U.S. Um, network. Uh, yeah. it, it wasn't HBO; it was NBC, and and they oh, okay. they they were aspiring to British style television, uh, and the the Brits Sky were looking for something a bit more uh fun in the american network style and so there was a lot of confusion about how to uh to to thread that that needle uh that the it so it's um the the sex uh the the color you know sort of that aspect of it uh, I'm very proud of. Uh, it's something I I fought hard for. It was inspired by many uh, uh, much of my childhood. Uh, it, but there, it's a series of many positives and many things I'm still scratching my head over. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, Park Chan Wook, can you talk about that project at all? You you can't drop a name without you know uh, backing uh, no. up. <laughs> no, it's it, it it's a that that was an adaptation uh, of of um, uh, a Japanese book called Genocidal Organ uh, for Bold Films. Uh, I can't really talk so much about uh, the content, but I got to work. Uh, the most amazing aspect of it is I, I got to work with Park Chan-wook, who is uh, wow. a genius, and I spent about a year doing that, uh, whether on Zoom or getting to. Uh, to sit with him, uh, and it's it's interesting because director uh, director Park, as as he's known, yes. um, is uh, he he. I think he speaks more English than most people are aware, but he he uses an interpreter, and it's this very interesting, peaceful experience mm-hmm. uh, because of that. It, it creates a pace of dialogue that's very different than the typical collaboration where you're essentially shouting at each other ideas and then talking <laughs> over each other and interrupting. <laughs> it, it, there's a formality that, that is imposed upon it. That, that was always deeply pleasurable. Uh, and he also, he just has a deep uh, well of knowledge uh, mm. uh, about film. And that isn't always the case as much as you assume it would be. Uh, his his passion is is vast, and it isn't just cinema. He's a very impressive filmmaker. Oh, I look forward to that. And, and another name drop I, I saw on your website that none other than Nicholas Meyer, who for me, you know, Wrath of Khan, Undiscovered Country, time after time, he gave Psalms for the End of the World a rave review. That must have been a fantastic moment when you got that. It, it was so. Nick and I are actually friends, which is a, a, a ridiculous treat for somebody who grew up <laughs> in the eighties. Uh, it, it, uh, 
at some point, somebody I knew referenced Nick and, and somehow I coaxed him into uh, setting up a, a, a meal and we've, we hit it off uh, and we've, we've stayed in touch and collaborated. Uh, but he's, uh, he's a very remarkable human being and, and his work has had a, a huge uh, mm-hmm. impact. Something like the strange case of Mr. Hyde, which is this pastiche of Jack the Ripper and, uh, and and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that that is uh, is something that you can point to Nick Meyer as being this uh, uh, sort of originator of in, in so many ways during mm-hmm. uh, the 70s. You know, some yeah. of the mashing up Sherlock Holmes, his great passion is Sherlock Holmes uh, with Sigmund Freud or H.G. Uh, Wells yeah. and, and Jack the Ripper. Uh, so he he's he's influenced me uh immensely uh and so it was a treat i had just read one of his novels and he offered to read mine uh i failed to point out that mine was twice the length of his uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i think i got the better end of the deal in every way <laughs> fantastic stuff uh well send him my best the man is a genius uh cole this has been an absolute pleasure folks psalms for the end of the world is out there now it's epic stuff you're gonna absolutely love it uh, Cole Haddon, such a joy speaking to you. Hope to speak to you again real soon. Thank you for the interview. Oh my gosh, what a great interview. So much to unpack there, Mark. It's hard to know where to start, but let's start with this wonderful, wonderful theme of incubating ideas. Cole talked about this idea of collecting notes, gathering notes. And I thought, when I heard that, I thought, yes. And I know you, in the, in the interview, you're like, yeah, I do that as well. I think a lot of people do this. You know, you, you get an idea, you get that seed of an idea for a book or maybe a seed of an idea for a new character that you've got. And then you, you just start, start, you know, ruminating on it. And capturing notes is so important, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, uh, I think there's a danger that a lot of people who are new to writing there's a lot of currency put in the idea air quotes oh i've got an idea uh, and it's going to be a, 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 a you know a blockbuster a million seller blah 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 but the idea isn't everything the idea is just the beginning of it and i think a lot of people when they're starting out think an idea should come fully formed with a story and characters attached it's just it just doesn't work like that an idea is, is a concept is something that might have just popped out of thin air you know if you got your you know you you got your radar on for ideas these things you, as a writer, ideas are not the problem. I'm always getting ideas, but trying to form them into something that has a beginning, middle and end and characters and all, all that exciting stuff that we love about storytelling. That's the hard part. So I do, I've got a general notebook and if an idea comes to me, I will write it down. It might just be a line. It might be half a page, might be a page or whatever. Start jotting it down. And there comes a point where I think, nope, it's not there yet. Not there yet, but there's something there. It's like, you know, if you walk along the beach, you find an interesting shell or whatever, or a stone or a pebble. If you're six years old, you'll, you'll relate to this. You know, you bring you bring back buckets of the bloody things home. And when you get the home, they all look a bit, you know, gray and dull and it's like what was why was i so excited about that but so you know hang on to hang on to it because it is a clumsy metaphor it might be a diamond you know but you you sit on this idea for a while and it could be weeks later you'll think oh that's another thing i could add to that let's drop that down let's and so you know maybe you keep a file on your laptop or as i do i keep notebooks for the different uh, projects um that i have and over time, these ideas start to accrete into something that looks like a story with a theme and characters and a beginning, middle and an end. And then once it gets to that point, I start taking it a bit more seriously and putting it together. I mean, the Witches of Woodville series, I can't tell you how long that that swirled around in my head. It was going to be a contemporary mm. thing. I couldn't quite make it work. I didn't know what it was about. It was just something that kept coming back. It wouldn't go away. It kept coming back. And I knew it was important. And I knew there was something about it that I loved. Um, so, you know, I just kept nurturing it and feeding it and coming I, coming back to it. But more importantly, not forcing it, not forcing it into something that it wasn't. And I think that's another mistake that I've certainly made in the past where I thought, okay, I know what this is now. I'm going to write it and it doesn't quite work, but let's try and bend it, bend it. Oh, no, I've broken it. You know, so if you try and push it too hard, you can break it as well. So it's really important not to rush these things, to allow yourself to give these things the the, the the time to breathe and germinate and grow 
Uh, and uh, open your mind to having as many of them as possible as well, because it can be the stupid, silliest, one-lined thing that can blow up into something amazing. So if you have an idea and it's it feels a bit half-baked, that's fine. That's the beginning. That is the first step on the yellow brick road. Just, you know, write it down. And I think it is important to write these things down because you might come across it in your notebook later on and go, oh, I'd forgotten all about that. And it fires something in your brain and it starts it ticking. And then you start writing more notes. So whenever you have these half-baked ideas, don't be don't despair that they're not fully formed on arrival. These things take a lot of time. Yeah. And you mentioned about kids collecting shells and stones <laughs> when my kids collected shells and stones they never actually made it into the house and, and most parents relate they all end up all of them in the side pockets of the back inside door of the car <laughs> rocks boulders entire mountain sides crabs Sto- uh, what is it about kids <laughs> but cole also talked about this idea of with ideas the kind of extension of that was waiting for everything to click mm. and i think as we start to gather ideas it's a bit like that crime scene and string and pictures yeah yeah, see, right? yeah 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 that, that's you know there's it, it, we're slowly kind of creating the picture when we the idea is literally the kind of like slap it on that's the first one mm. in the middle with nothing yeah. around it yeah and i think this idea of ruminating and and um you know, allowing time for ideas to form and grow and evolve. That's where we start to see those kind of little satellites all start to appear. And then you can see the full picture. And I think that's this idea of a way he's, he, he knows that something's being formed and he's being patient and allowing it to click. Yeah. That word click is the moment, isn't it? Where it's like, okay, I've got it. Well, that for me, that moment, I need, I need uh, three essential things to embark on a story. Um, one is a protagonist who needs to go on a journey of change. Uh, second is an ending. I want to know where they end up. Not necessarily how the scene, how it ends, but if you imagine the journey of change as a journey from A to Z, if if A, they're kind of angry about something, then by the time they get to Z, they need to be calm and placid. Or if, or if they're meek at the beginning, then they need to be rebellious by the end of it. You know, I want there to be a complete 180 with this character. But how do I how do I get them there? The thing that really, when it clicks into place, that's when I can start writing, is when I have the theme, which is a good central dramatic argument, a good question that is debatable that I can challenge that character with uh, on their journey of change. And once I've got those three things, and we talk about this a lot more in the academy, um, I can I can start working on that as a story because I've I've got the ingri- the essential ingredients that I need to write a story, which is a character, the journey, and the things that's going to challenge them on the way. And once I've got that, that's when it clicks for me. And it'll be different for different people, but for me, that that's that's yeah. the essential bits. And I think part of the journey for each writer is working out, learning about mm. what it is for them that clicks, yeah, and yeah, yeah. doing it enough times, like you you have, Mark. You kind of you start to understand. Okay, this is. These are the these are my kind of elements that I always have to have, and then you become, it becomes more familiar, which is really really important to know. You, that's almost like okay, it's now time to start writing. Yeah, in earnest. So, absolutely. Now, Cameron uh, Cole also talked about how writing schedules affected his writing, and there's a wonderful story, a beautiful visual of him with his baby strapped in his Bjorn carrier, whatever he had, <laughs> to the front of him. Whilst he wrote at 3 a.m. in the morning, yeah, twilight, the twilight, the twilight hours. It's just, it's such a fascinating thing to discuss, isn't it? Because we've always talked on the academy, I always say to people, write, write first thing. I always bang on about this like, bank your words before your rest of your day goes pear shaped. Like, at least you go to bed at night going, at least I wrote, no matter how much went wrong in my day. But, um, you know, obviously some people do night shifts. Some people do, you know, some people have babies. But this fascinating idea that Cole had to write in that that quiet, well, assuming baby was obviously quiet, but 3 a.m. to 8 a.m., wasn't it? A five-hour period where yeah. the rest of yeah. the world around him was asleep. I mean, it's a, when you 
I mean, you, any parent will know this. When those first few weeks when your child is born are an insane time, especially if it's your first one, because part of you hasn't you going, uh, I haven't had any training for this. I've read all the books, but blimey, uh, who, you know, how, is, how, how am I allowed to be in charge of a child? Um, you know, it's a crazy time anyway, and your mind is all over the place. Uh, Cole did write a letter, which he did share with us. And I'm going to read the the opening paragraph. He says, it was 18th of January, 2018, just past three in the morning in southeast London. My second born son, not even nine days old yet, was strapped to my chest. His tiny, round face filled me with such love, more than I felt I could contain, but also terror. Terror, because here was something else I might lose too soon. This was how I began to write Psalms for the End of the World, a globe-spanning and time-jumping novel I've been pondering for close to two decades, a novel that I would spend the next six months manically writing until the words The End appeared on my computer screen. Now, you know, Mr. D, that when you get up at three in the morning because baby needs a bottle or needs a change or needs to be burped or whatever it is, your mind is in the twilight zone. The baby's mind, you know, because all this is new, they're usually wailing and screaming. It's a, it's a, it's another plane of existence altogether. You always start the podcast by talk, by questioning time and reality. And you know, if you've got a, if you've got a young kid, you do that every night. You know, um, so it's it's a fascinating place for your mind to be, and you do. I mean, my daughter was born just before the turn of the millennium. She was born December 1999. I remember hmm. uh, I didn't go to a New Year's Eve party because, you know, I had a baby. Claire was out bell ringing, actually, at, you know, ringing the millennium in. So it was me and Emily right. at home. And I remember stepping outside with her, looking at the fireworks and the stars and saying to her, look, you know, new millennia, this is amazing, Emily, you know, all these possibilities. And she probably just burped and filled her nappy. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> it, it was one of those moments where I thought this is, you know, it was a special little moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's your mind is in a strange place. And um, I'm not suggesting people make a habit of this, but if you are waking at strange hours in the night, then maybe get up and write Maybe do yeah. something with it, or even if it's just emailing a note to yourself about an idea, the weird idea that you've had, or just scribbling it down. It could lead to something amazing. All, all my, all my, my spiritual friends out there on the bestseller experiment, we all know about three a.m. in the morning. That's all I'm going to say, Mark. Just leave you hanging. But it is an interesting time. <laughs> what do with of- your? What you do with your cult? You you keep that to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we're all on Zoom at three AM in the morning, Mark. Yeah, working out the world's problems. No, but it is. There's there's something. There's something. A lot. Okay. The the the, the 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 stories that you hear time and time again is that people often wake up and they often wake up at the same time every night and they look at their watch and go, oh. and it's not three AM for everyone. It can be three twenty three. It can be. And it's weird that how often it happens. What if you, if you take this from a kind of a, like. Uh, interesting perspective here we go <laughs> the story behind that is that you wake up because there's something that you need to capture at that point you know you've made you may be in sleeping and this idea is like it's grown and grown and grown to a point where it's like you're waking up because you need to get it down and they always say don't ignore um the ideas don't ignore the the voices that you you know you may have heard you know in your dreams. Don't ignore them. Capture them at that point, and then go back to sleep, yeah. and then review it in the morning because you never quite know. Because you always forget. I find if I don't capture it, I, I I kind of am lying there. Then I might remember it when I wake up, but if I don't capture it, then literally within five minutes I've lost it. So all I'm saying to people is if this happens to you a lot. And if you if you don't have that notebook, not your phone, folks. Get your phone out of the bedroom, notebook and pen, and maybe a little one has a little clip on light, so you don't wake your other half if you're lucky enough to, you know, have someone on the other side of the bed. But ultimately, capture it, scribble something that will prompt you and remind you the next day. Because I think we're possibly our most creative in our subconscious we're sleeping and that's why sometimes we wake up in the middle of night so there's a whole realm there there's some people that are going to probably write in and tell me why this happens and i'm sure everyone's got some very interesting stories so actually on that note if you if this is something that happens to you let's put it out there let's let's make make people realize it's not unusual and that everyone's doing it <laughs> happens happens to me 4 30 yeah. every morning pretty much every morning 4 30 really? 
yeah my brain yeah. is is because I, I it's um it's been like that since i've been what a since i've been writing every day uh and uh since i left the day job um because i think my brain is already going okay right in a couple of hours you're going to be writing aren't you so if you're going to be writing mm-hmm. in a couple of hours you need to start you know gearing Getting those gears to into 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 shape. So yeah, that's four thirty every morning. Someone once told me, and I thought I think this is an interesting concept, whether you're of the spiritual kind of bent or not. Someone once told me that they they find in the middle of the night, no matter where they are in the world, this is interesting. So take a three AM for example. Everyone else is sleeping. And if you think of things like like waves, like frequencies um, or noise, when everyone's up and rushing around, there's a lot of kind of high level energy that's happening. Everyone's like, you know, rushing around doing things. But in the middle of the night, everyone's asleep. And there's this idea that there's less noise around. And there is, and that's what we feel. That's that twilight, that, that kind of peace that we feel, that peace that you kind of experienced, Mark, you know, at midnight when you went out with Emily. There's something magical about that time. And some people believe that, that's when pure creativity really can come through because there's the it's almost like a radio frequency where it's, you've actually hit like 95.8 fm rather than you're in between and you just hear all this static yeah i don't have a spiritual thing i, I think it's just that you, you get finally get a piece of bloody peace and quiet <laughs> thing, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> no banging on the door it's, i mean i probably wake up because it, that's when my tinnitus kicks in you know i've got i've got that as well it's like, ee, oh oh yeah. i'm up oh god right okay you know so um yeah by the way if that. anyone has any cures for tinnitus mark and i both want to know about it yeah. you can tell i'm i'm ha- i'm booked from mri i'm probably gonna have to have to have hearing aids uh, really? later this year yeah 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 i can't wait robot ears i'm all for that <laughs> <laughs> that's bizarre everyone's well, talking about tinnitus though i know this i know this isn't problem. because we're getting on as well mark this is something to do it's with the walk it's i don't know i think it's the walkman generation mate it's nothing to do with COVID. Oh, it's the fact that so. I've, been, I've been listening to pink floyd and led zeppelin <laughs> at 11 for since i was you know 15 years old no regrets. I've messed my mum was right. That'll ruin your hearing, Mark, she would say. And yeah, she was she absolutely yeah. right. Mums are always right. Mums are always right. Do you know what this weird thing though is is I think about I, I talk about COVID, but I always find I get really bad tinnitus whenever I've been wearing headphones. And the COVID means everyone's doing Zoom calls. Right. Headphones. Might be nothing to do with the. A lot of people have got these ideas that we're all got tinnitus because of the uh, vaccinations. I think it might no. just be because we're all wearing headphones because we're doing uh, we're doing a lot of. Uh, you we're know, the Walkman generation. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. But, I, but nowadays, I'm... kids kids don't like. My daughter never takes her headphones off. It's like, can you take your headphones off at dinner table, please? <laughs> I mean, in the car, trying to have a conversation. Headphones. It's like it's, it's not th- kids. It's me as well. I'm. I walk around the house with with these on. These are my closed back ones because I'm constantly listening to podcasts. Podcasts. So <laughs> if I'm doing the dishwasher or the washing up, whatever podcast, podcast, podcast. Yeah. yeah, I'm constantly on it. So I. Yeah, I'm. I'm the worst. I'm the worst for that. I know we've gone a bit off track, but we this have, is important. But, but it's, yeah, it's, it's good. No, no, this is what it's about. We 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 don't stick to a script on this show, and that's what partly brings up all the randomness, which we love. Um, but anyway, folks, if you're if you're interested in joining us for the extended version of the extended version of this podcast, we're going to be talking about we're going to be talking about some very very interesting points that Cole talked talked on. One being Hollywood being soulless, <laughs> right? We're going to delve into that. We're going to talk. We're going to talk in, on that note about the difference between screenwriting and novel writing, and the problem when you have too many people wanting to give you their ideas. Um, we're going to also talk about learning from failure and in, and practicing failure, which was something that Cole really alluded to. And we're also going to cover subjects about genre agnostic and also the importance of short chapters and giving your reader a sense of accomplishment. So if any of those excite you and you want to delve in more, plus some random stuff, of course, um, <laughs> pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support or academy.bestsellerexperiment.com to join the Academy because both our patrons and Academy members get the extended versions every week. 
We just finished recording the extended version, and I know it's back to back. If you just, but I just saw Mark almost have a hernia laughing. You need to go and subscribe <laughs> to the extended version, folks. It was a brilliant moment, brilliant moment in the podcasting history. I think, um, yeah, I just gonna, I'm not going to tell you even what happened. I'm just going to say, go and subscribe if you ever needed a reason to do it. Bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Brilliant. Now, Mark, something I wanted to tell you about very quickly. A wonderful moment in my family's life just the other day. My daughter mm -hmm. came home from school and she said, Dad, um, we got given a, a, a different uh, homework assignments we could choose from. And I decided to record a podcast. <laughs> so my 13-year-old wow. daughter went, well, I can help with that. And then the funny <laughs> thing was, is I then you suddenly thought, oh, no, I've become one of those parents that's doing the homework for my child. But in all fairness, <laughs> all I did was I set her up in the studio with professional equipment Urban Myth Club intro music, uh, the most amazing <laughs> compression and then equalization software. And she did the podcast. She she prepared it. She wrote it. It was Brilliant. in French, just to make it even harder. Wow. She's doing, I know. She's in French mode about the bubonic plague. <laughs> 13-year-old doing <gasps> I know, bonkers. But she handed in this five-minute podcast, and it sounds absolutely <laughs> unbelievable. She has a lovely speaking voice. But it was so much fun. So much fun, like bring her into the studio. And I thought, oh gosh, you know, when, when the teacher hears it, they're going to be like, oh, this sounds quite, quite professional. So you know, <laughs> at what point, at what point are you kind of enabling your child's homework? But so I'm waiting to hear back how she does, but that was a fun moment. I thought how nice that, and I'm sure it was partly, partly influenced by the fact that, you know, she's always heard me going out to the studio doing podcasts and she knows we've been doing this for a number of years, but it was just a fun moment. So is that, is that the bestseller experiment, the next generation? Cause my <laughs> Emily is working on the books, you know, so there could be a point down the road where we've got the, the next generation taking the over the podcast and we're, like we're doddery Trek. old men. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they put us away <laughs> and they put us away in the home. Oh, absolutely brilliant. Actually, and one other thing I do want to mention, I, for anyone on YouTube who's been watching me the last couple of weeks, uh, wondering what this blue flower is, it's actually a forget-me-not badge. And I just want to take this moment, because we can, because it's our podcast, right? Mm, absolutely. absolutely. Um, <laughs> this is a badge for people that are... Uh, it's a forget-me-not to remember about people with dementia. And I just mm. want to put it out there. Anyone who listens to this podcast who is either caring for someone with dementia or someone with early stages dementia, um, you know, and is dealing with that, I want, I want to just remind everyone out in the world that we have not forgotten you because it is an incredibly, incredibly difficult um, time in someone's life and in very, very, very difficult as well for partners, nurses, anyone who's working with them, we salute you. And so we I'm do. wearing this, I'm wearing this badge last couple of weeks in honor for you. We don't need a dementia week. Uh, this is something that people live with every single day of their lives. So yeah, I'm, my heart um, and thoughts go out to you all. And um, you know, if this little podcast can bring a little bit of joy into your life, a little bit of a break, then as far as I'm concerned, job done. So anyway, I hope everyone out there in the world is doing well good stuff good so stuff. mr stay um social media do we have any social media to say only a little bit only a little bit and i do love this uh this is uh, michaela limpkin and i went to her book launch she's got this amazing book how to love and be loved which is non-fiction and uh, i went to a zoom book launch she's got she's a member of the academy she's uh, working on a novel but she's also done this non-fiction book which is dyslexic friendly which we talked about which was terrific um, but she said um, she just reported back she said if you sit in a big garden center cafe whilst waiting for your car servicing to be finished and you put a pile of five books on your table sooner or later someone comes over to ask you why you have a pile of the same <laughs> book on your table then you tell them you're an author and they buy two and invite you to speak and sell that book at a local event oh my gosh this is a whole new marketing stream the, the garden it. center cafe piles of books you, you could extend it to anywhere you could sit on a park bench with 10 books on the arm oh, well, these things oh yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i love it do you know what I, I think that's brilliant michaela actually we once i once went on a stag do oh here we go here we go um leicester square in london we ended up slightly oh, yeah. drunk and there were all of these different performers um statues uh, yep. guitar players, jugglers, you know, the, the, the classic kind of Covent Garden, Leicester Square vibe. Brilliant, yep. brilliant, brilliant. But we were a bunch of lads out in the Raz, uh, sending off one of our friends into, into to marriagehood. And we found a crate, a milk, do you remember those old milk crates, Mark, the orange crates? 
Yeah, of course. And, yeah. and and we thought, well, you know, in for a penny. So we said to Neil, our uh, our stag, we said, right, what you've got to do, here's a crate. You've got to earn 20 quid and then we're going. And he said, what do you mean? He's from Wales. And we said, you've got to just use the crate, do, do anything. So he basically set this crate up between a juggler and a wonderful guitarist. And he, he just stood in the middle of it. And all these throngs of crowds were, were watching these performers. And he just sat there on this crate doing nothing. <laughs> and very slowly and we we stood around we stood it we stood as a little group just watching him and laughing and very slowly these two huge groups that were next to us started to kind of move across and make this massive i'm talking like 70 people all like in a croissant kind of crescent around neil just watching him waiting for him to do something <laughs> he had no idea what he was gonna do and so then he just dis- did some weird movement. <laughs> it was like robotics or something. And some kid ran up and gave him some money. <laughs> no. Yeah. And then, and then other people thought, oh, so what, we go up to him and we put some, and then he'll do something. And we were just absolutely in stitches. It's the funniest thing I think I've ever seen. But literally within 10 minutes, he'd earned his 20 quid. And he worked out in the pub later on when he was spending that said 20 quid that as a PhD chemist, he'd actually earn a higher hourly rate sitting on a crate in Leicester Square than he did at his day job. And so it's this idea of the curiosity, the, the link, the, the very, very tenuous link. Tenuous is that link. Love a crate, tenuous link. There is a link, folks. Stick with me on this. The, the, the curiosity factor of something random in the middle of somewhere mm. public can absolutely work. And Mikhail has proven that. I mean, so folks, take five of your unsold books, go into the garage, you know where they all are in, in the cardboard boxes. Stand. Grab five the of them. piles. Go, exactly. Go somewhere <laughs> random. Could be the cafe where you go regularly. It could be at the train station, but the most randomest spot and take a photo of you with your books send it to us we'll put it on we'll, we'll put it on social media and then if you sell any tell us uh, this could like you say i think mark we're on something here i think mikhail this is a whole new marketing Correct trend if you could it. do that every single day like 10 seven, 10, 10 <laughs> random books brilliant brilliant <sighs> have you ever have you ever done any busking as a musician oh yes yeah busking yeah, yeah in What's the underground in montreal yeah. oh really yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. I used to, I used to pay my way for the for the the, the, the subway ride home. It's um, it's a very random experience. It's yeah. very random because you get people that walk past you who um can't make eye contact because they know they're not going to give anything and they feel really yeah. bad about it. And then you get people who are genuinely they stop and then you actually have to perform for them because they're actually like, well, come on then, come on. Then. Yeah, I'll give you yeah. some money, but let's hear it then. Come on. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, and I know people actually busk for a living. They actually make a full-time yeah, yeah, income yeah. from it. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, what was your set list? What was your, what was your crowd pleaser? Oh, random, random stuff. I would actually often do originals because I was using it as an opportunity just to kind of rehearse material and see if I could get good responses from people. But um, Comfortably Numb on the guitar. Really? <laughs> yeah, <but random. laughs> But usually, usually crowd. You'd have got a quid off me. You'd have got a quid. Yeah, if I know, anyone right? doing Floyd, they get a quid. If I yeah. got a quid, because I did um, when we did a play at the Edinburgh Festival, uh, we did a we did some busking in Edinburgh, and um, some of it was blues. But I wasn't playing. But there was one song they had called the Chicken Song, which wasn't the spitting image one. It was just a completely different sort of country and western thing that needed some chicken sort of scat in the middle of it. So I would be the one going. Bah! in the middle of edinburgh at the height of the so if you were in edinburgh 1990 august 1990 you saw some idiot singing like a chicken that was me he's now on the podcast (laughs) not on the asylum (laughs) i just had the randomest of thoughts mark the author's equivalent of busking would be sitting on a park bench reading your novel out loud which would be very people would think you're absolutely bonkers wouldn't they actually what you do see in london and you see this uh when you get near the globe theater so you've got the tape modern you've got the globe theater there's a guy down there with a typewriter old-fashioned typewriter on a sheet of paper and if you give him like a tenor he'll write you a poem and he'll write it oh, to order brilliant 
Yeah, really? so there is, yeah, there, there's a poet sort of busker. Poet yeah, tapper, tapper, tapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there is, there's a guy who does that. Yeah. Oh, such random stuff in this world, don't you love it? It's Isn't great, life it? beautiful yeah. when you when you think about all the randomness? It's, it's that stuff that makes the world go round. But brilliant so stuff, brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much for sending that. If you've got any wins that you want to share with us, please let us know. Pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the contact form and send it to me and Mark. We get those and we read through all of them. We always yes. try and respond as well. Um, send if, us. What, uh, 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 I was going to say also whilst you're there. So we're just, we're just, we're just warming up for the FX. No rehearsal at all. Um, yeah. No rehearsal. Um, <laughs> if you are interested in getting a weekly email newsletter from us as well, the Best Seller yes. Experiment newsletter, do make sure to sign up whilst you're at the website. Pop your email address in and we will send you a weekly update of all the crazy things happening at Best Seller Experiment, the guests that we've, we've interviewed, what we've learned from the interviews and a link to all the places you can listen to this podcast as well. Yes, and uh, get in touch. Give us your public declarations for the year, your goals for 2023. Uh, drop us a line at com. There's a uh, contact tab there. Or drop us a line on social media. Facebook is Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. And if you've enjoyed the episode, if you've been inspired by the likes of Cole Haddon, um, give us a rating on your podcast catcher. Five stars is nice. Do that. Uh, and uh, subscribe. Like yeah, yeah, it's all good. And thanks as always to our editors, Dave and JD. And if you have not yet started your writing habit of the year, folks, yes, you, 200wordchallenge.com, pop over to the website, sign up for free and start your 200 words day. It will change your life or well, or what, Mark? Or, or, or you won't write. That's what will happen. <laughs> if you yeah. don't do it, you won't write. And then you won't have that book at the end of the year. Um, so please, I almost said all your money back, but it's actually free, isn't it? So it's can't free. That. Yeah. yeah. So um, <laughs> pop along and sign up to the website there, get your name down and join a merry group of um, people who have actually contributed so far over 20 million words through that little experiment we started a few years ago. And don't forget, folks, you've got a week left to sign up to the Academy. If you want to start this year, if you want to start this year with a bang out the gates, writing with intention, writing as you mean it, believing in yourself, becoming that author you always know you've dreamed of doing, um, in getting inspired and inspiring others with what you accomplish. Pop over to the Academy, Bestseller Academy. It's academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Get your application in quick, 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 quick. All links in the show notes because we're getting a bit frazzled. It's been a long day and we need to lie day. down, don't we? Yeah, totally. <laughs> so off to get my old team now. Brilliant, folks. Well, listen, it's been so nice having you with us this week and we can't wait to see you next week for some great guests in the pipeline. So don't miss an episode. Tell coming. your friends, folks. Mm. Spread the word about the bestseller experiment and uh, we'll see you next week. That's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. goodbye. Puma pants, puma pants, puma pants. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, <laughs> right? <laughs> you see, this is what you get in the extended, right? You don't get class. <laughs> no. Intellectual stuff. <laughs>